Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards delivered his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. Thanks to being included in nearly every high school anthology of literature, it has become an emblematic moment in the transatlantic religious moment called the Great Awakening. Less well known is that both America and Europe were at the time in some, experiencing some of the worst weather that contemporaries had ever known. Is there a connection between climate and faith? Yes, says my guest Philip Jenkins, and he gives several case studies of these connections in his new book, Climate, Catastrophe, and Faith, How Changes in Climate Drive Religious Upheaval. Philip Jenkins is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. Philip Jenkins, thanks for being with us on Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. So um, let's begin with the where you begin the book. Um, why is climate important and connected to human history? Why should we care uh, for historical studies, the history of human humans? Why should we care about climate? Well, uh, you <clears throat> begin with a, a very good example there, which is uh, everyone knows about the Great Awakening, if they know anything about American history or the history of religion. But my argument is that uh, uh, unless you pay attention to a climate context, you cannot possibly understand what is going on. So uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon and it had an amazing impact and people were uh, screaming and yelling and fainting. And the question is, uh, why would they have felt like this four years before? And my suggestion is probably not because the year 1739 to 42 were among the... Uh, worst years in climate history uh, in the uh, the North Atlantic world. Um, you, you'd have had to be about 500 years old to remember uh, a comparable time. Um, the seas were freezing. There were multi-foot deep snowdrifts. The uh, chance of um, famine and uh, plague and mass death was very high. Maybe these really were the, uh, the end times. And those thoughts have to be in the minds of the people who are hearing uh, Edwards who and who around the same time are welcoming uh, George Whitfield and turning up in their tens of thousands to hear him. The history of the Great Awakening is conventionally taken as starting uh, around 1740-41. There have been tremors beforehand, but this is the real explosion. My argument is that you um, cannot understand the awakening without that climate uh, context. And as you say, there are plenty of other examples like that. So I think uh, climate is what I call the missing dimension in the history of religion. So as a professor of mine used to say, um, Southern history is too important to be left to Southerners. or um, And uh, climate, climate is too important to be left to climatologists. We should all be, we should all be taking note of it. Uh, you look at any of the uh, <clears throat> great events, both in uh, political history, but specifically my area, religious uh, history, and you can normally not always find a, uh, a, a climate uh, dimension. That's not an um, absolute reliable thing. This is not a mechanical thing. Uh, but 
oh, brother, when, when you see these uh, eras of sudden, rapid change, transformation, these eras that we call revolutions or great awakenings, uh, that usually correlates very closely uh, to one of these um, climate catastrophes or the other thing that happens, times when the climate is actually uh, smiling in a very benevolent way on uh, humanity, different uh, consequences, um, but similar ultimate causes. Now, you refer to the four horsemen of climatic disruption, since climate is not uh, the primary mover necessarily of these disruptions in the human world. Um, what are these four horsemen and what are their varying levels of importance? Right. Well, we, uh, we usually take them from Revelation, the uh, book of Revelation, the uh, uh, taken to be famine, plague, uh, death and war. And uh, climate has many uh, impacts, but one of the main things that it uh, does is it um, it affects people's opportunities to produce and uh, grow and trade uh, food. So uh, a, a climate disaster tends to be a disaster in um, food supply. Uh, a starving population is extremely vulnerable to uh, plague. And incidentally, climate also drives new kinds of uh, disease in different uh, ways. When you have starving, impoverished, uh, very, very unhappy populations, they're very likely to um, rebel, be discontented. That can drive uh, wars. And uh, the consequences are usually uh, uh, mass deaths. So you have the, um, uh, these uh, four horsemen. And uh, when you see an era with all those horsemen riding in such very uh, loud and aggressive forms, you can normally find a uh, climate context. And as I say, you can uh, normally, usually find some kind of religious uh, consequence, though it will change according to the era uh, in question and the opportunities that people have in that time. So um, one thing that you drew my attention to, which I, I realize... Um pretty easy to forget, especially we, um, we, we, we live in an era in which the only animals that some of us are close to are dogs and cats. Um, up until very recently in human history, did make, the cat was probably not, well, anyway, we were close to lots of other animals and much more uh, reliant. Well, we realized our dependence upon them. We are still dependent upon them. We'll get to that. Right. Um, but uh, you, you you clued into me the importance of zoonotic diseases. Is that, is that right? Zoonotic. Uh, that, yeah, that, zoonotic. And, right. and, and I hadn't, and I thought, oh yeah, that's right. Of course, these these things happened at the time of the Black Death. There were the epidemics among the cattle, and of course, epidemics in the cattle in in European history are those are very bad times. Right. So you know, we uh, talk these days about uh, pandemic, hmm. and uh, the the dem in a pandemic comes from people. You can also have panzootics, meaning mm. uh, something that affects all animals in the same way. And if you take two of the worst years in the 18th century, you've got 1709, you've got uh, uh, 1740, um, and they both lead to these dreadful, dreadful um, cattle <clears throat> plagues, which kill millions and millions of cattle. Uh, now, you know, today in a non-agricultural society, we may say, well, too bad for the uh, farmers, how sad. Um, but at the time, that is a catastrophe that echoes uh, along the whole of uh, society. The other thing climate does 
is it changes the habitats of animals of all kinds that are carrying potentially uh, diseases. So it's probably a climate shift um, that means that the bubonic plague uh, spreads to um, black rats. As black rats spread, uh, so the plague spreads in new um, parts of the world. So you, you start, the more you get into this, looking at uh, the world in a very holistic mm-hmm. way that um, plants and animals and people are uh, all connected, and ultimately they share one earth and the, the sun shines on uh, all of them. So uh, climate really does drive all. Well, before we get to the, the interesting connection, which is at the heart of your book, um, which is the connection to faith, to religion, yep. religious practice institutions, let's spend a little bit more time talking about um, about climate and climate studies. You have a nice historiographical survey of the sort of scholarly inflection points in the, the, towards the development of a history of climate and society. Could you briefly sketch those out? Yes, um, it, it really goes back to the uh, 1950s and 60s uh, scholarship uh, produced initially in um, England and uh, uh, England and France. Um, and uh, uh, at the time, you had a scholar like uh, uh, Hubert Lamb, for example, in, uh, uh, in England, uh, d- doing this very innovative work and um, identifying periods like, as we call them at the time, the, uh, the medieval warm period and the, uh, the Little Ice Age. And um, at the time, they are struggling to make a point that is, uh, well, you know, it's just a degree or two of temperature in terms of average. Why should anyone care about that? And uh, uh, from the 1960s and 70s onwards, people uh, look more and more, collect more uh, evidence of this and get more support from uh, hard science, from studies of uh, ice cores in the Arctic, for example. Um, and you realize these great uh, cycles of climate uh, through history and how you can focus on particular eras of sudden and really dramatic change. And we today look at them and think, you know, that must have been an interesting time to be around. And at the time, they must have been absolutely horrible. And if, for example, you're looking at uh, tree rings and the evidence of um, long sequences of uh, plants and trees, um, you can identify particular years as being uniquely catastrophic. And then you look, you correlate those to what you know from the written record, and you realize that you have in those exact same years really dramatic, radical historical transformations. Um, that had never been seen before as climatic. And then you think, aha, well, um, yes, they were. So um, what we know right now um, is totally different from what we knew, say, in um, in 1945. Um, you know, I think 60 or 70 years ago, the attitude was, to put it crudely, uh, what uh, what does the climate have to do with the real world? And uh, what we now understand is that that real world is very substantially made by climate and climate change. Now, I should say that um, in the last 20 years, it's become a wrinkle in the discussion of climate and climate history. Um, I remember uh, right at the beginning of the concerns about uh, global, I should say, anthropogenic global warming. uh, I was quite fascinated with the medieval warm period. Um, I remember Michael McCormick telling us about this in Carol Engine History 
explaining this is one of the reasons why tax revenues go up and this is why Norman, France, and England are such uh, uh, have, a, have such a wealthy exchequer, although yep. you wouldn't know it 400 years later because then there's an ice age and so that sort of reverses. But there's a reason why Norman, England is able to become fabulously rich because of a medieval warm period. And this was really fascinating to me. But in the last 20 years, you know, sometimes I have mentioned this, I mentioned other climate fluctuations, uh, say, you know, the reason why uh, Englishmen in uh, New England coined the term blizzard and, uh, and not, yeah. they don't do it when they're in the British Isles. Um, students say, well, no, professor, are you a, a, a global warming denialist? Um, and that sort of, uh, that as if I've made some sort of, uh, you know, slur against a faith. Could you explain the sort of the, the way that we can balance our way through this sort of minefield um, uh, and, and why uh, sure. medieval warm period doesn't mean that you're a global warming denialist, one of the worst things that can be said to anyone in contemporary public square? Right. No, the, uh, you um, you raise an excellent point, and that's something I try and uh, uh, battle with uh, in the book, and certainly in terms of uh, people who oppose the uh, contemporary global warming theory will will cite these medieval examples, and they will say, for example, um, if everything uh, was so good during the medieval warming period, why are we so concerned about it now? Uh, and there's an overreaction against this and exactly the grounds that you're saying. And people will say, well, maybe it um, wasn't really that warm and it uh, only covered very limited parts of the world. And in fact, uh, these days, people tend not to talk about the medieval warm period. They call it something like the medieval climate exception. And there's almost <laughs> like a, a, a tut tut in parenthesis yeah, right yeah. after it. Yes, indeed, relatively, uh, it is warm, but there's a fundamental crashing difference between then and now, which is the medieval warm period. You can argue exactly about what causes it, but it happens through factors that are transient, that go away, that change. Whereas when we talk about modern anthropogenic um, warming, we're talking um, about a process that will not stop of its own accord unless you deal with fundamental changes in what human beings uh, uh, do, hence the, uh, uh, the anthropo. Um, and, and that's an, uh, you know, an absolute night and day uh, uh, distinction. I, I try and flag that several times in the, uh, uh, in the book, I, um, I hope successfully. Uh, so, is there a medieval warm period? Is it very, very good uh, in lots of ways for large numbers of people? Absolutely. Um, but it has specific known uh, causes um, which are transient. What we have right now is set in unless people behave differently. So big difference. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those transient causes. Um you run through several. Uh, that was a very nice segue. Thank you. Uh, one of them is sunspots, um, yep. which uh, I remember these are the, um, it's particularly influential in thinking about the little ice age, right? I mean, there's these wonderful diagrams of sunspots and their correlation with, say, 1714, when it got so cold that wine froze on the tables in Versailles during the War of Spanish Secession. So we see a, we see a link there. Um, so could we, could we explain why sure. sunspots are important? Yeah, um, sunspots were first discovered when uh, you know Galileo and his followers started making uh, uh, images of the uh, sun, and they uh, started uh, recording these. 
in the uh, late 19th century, people used these records and they found something really interesting, which was that the number of sunspots visible at any given time changed enormously. And uh, in a typical year, you might have like a couple of thousand. And in some years, you have zero. And so you have these period of what are called sunspot minima, like there's a famous one called the Mondo Minimum uh, during the 17th century. The suggestion is this. The sun emits more or less energy at different times. Um, and during periods when it's emitting less energy, there are fewer or no sunspots. If you choose that period, like the 17th century, the Mondo Minimum, then you have a cold sun. And that has a lot of implications. Um, partly it means, you know, lower lower temperatures, but it also affects the great cycles of the oceans that we think of, like with, uh, like with El Nino, for example, in the Pacific, the related ocean currents um, around the world. And there's a very close linkage, again, between the, uh, the El Nino and those ocean currents and the uh, frequency and severity of pressure on tectonic plates that drives volcanoes. <laughs> and and I told you this was holistic. Yeah, Everything's yeah, connected. We, yeah. we, we get very uh, mystical here. Yeah. And I'll be uh, taking applications for my uh, new uh, 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 cult to worship yeah. the earth shortly. James um, James Lovelock already has 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 beat you he, to that. One. Yeah. He yeah. he certainly has uh, with uh, uh, with Gaia. Um, but if you look at an era like the uh, the Little Ice Age, which is a period of about 600 years, um, but within that you have some periods of extreme, extreme cold. Um, and uh, one runs from about 1640 to 1715. Um, very low sunspots. Volcanoes around the Pacific Rim are going off like firecrackers. Um each of those will push uh, a lot of detritus up into the atmosphere that will uh, cool the world uh, further. And so by the time you get to the uh, the 1680s, things are extremely cold. Sem uh, the mid-1690s are a terrible time. 1709 is a terrible time. And that echoes through in the ways I've been talking about, uh, shorter, uh, shorter growing seasons. Um, interference with uh, trade, less food, more uh, epidemics, and uh, uh, near social and political collapse in many areas. And one giveaway for this, by the way, is when you get accounts of these horrors happening, not in one country, not in England, say, but in England and China and Peru and, the, and West Africa, you're dealing with global disasters responding to global uh, phenomena. So um, um, I blame the sun uh, as as one driving uh, factor. The sun and uh, as it drives the oceans. I'll have to uh, rummage through one of my astronomy textbooks and find a very simple equation that you can use to calculate the uh, just the energy that's being delivered to a three by five card from the sun. Uh, we yes. we don't have a very good understanding. Uh, of the Im immense amount of energy the sun generates, the idea that it can somehow uh, shift currents and even tectonic plates is uh, odd to us. But once you start yeah. to look at the fundamentals, you realize that, um, yeah, it, it does drive everything. Yeah. 
think I, I think we're moving into a very mystical mode. We, here we are, we are, but there's a reason why the Egyptians had an idea there with Ra. Um, they weren't, you know, that was there was there was some some uh, apprehension of uh, of physical reality there. Um, so let's talk about one sort of good period. We've been mentioning the medieval warm period. Um, let's get to the finally the concept, the connections to religion. Um, how did the medieval warm period uh, change? religious life in Europe and elsewhere. Okay. The uh, the warmest part of the medieval warm uh, is roughly the century or so after about 1150 to, uh, to 1260. You have much longer uh, growing spells for uh, plants. Um, you have great new um, settlements. You have expanding populations. They're looking for places to live. That's wonderful. That's more people paying taxes, uh, paying tithes. Where does all the surplus money go? Well, it goes into building uh, parish churches. It goes into uh, uh, cathedrals. Uh, people flock into towns where there are um, uh, universities. Uh, where people uh, uh, discuss ideas. And if you date so, uh, so many of the key concepts that we think of as uh, essentially Catholic, so many of them might have origins way back in the early church, but it's in this century after 1160 or so uh, that they reach fruition whether you're talking about uh, very high Eucharistic ideas about transubstantiation, the, um, uh, the cult of the, uh, uh, the Virgin Mary, these very high ideas of papal power, everything you think of as quintessentially Catholic and high medieval grows out of this, uh, grows out of this period. Um, so as I say, you know, uh, Catholicism as we know it, uh, comes out of a world with uh, um, a warm sun and warm seas. Um, and, you know, this is a great era. People like uh, St. Francis and St. Dominic and uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas. And um, what's interesting for me about this is, yes, you see that in Europe and the Catholic world, but you get very, very close analogies in other societies that are totally disconnected. So if you look at Japanese history, for example, which has no connections with Europe, you can tell the story in the same way. Hmm. Uh, population booms. People pour their money into new uh, temples, new religious movements, and it's regarded as one of the greatest, most explosive and expansive um, eras of the history of religion in that country. Uh, you know, it's the era of uh, uh, Dogen, who might be described as uh, Thomas Aquinas, Francis, and Dominic rolled into one. Mm -hmm. So this f sets down fundamental uh, foundations for, in, say, Japan and Europe. Um, and then we have something that's not completely different, but is the reverse beginning in 1320. You go through four eras of climactic change with deep effects upon religious life. So let's run through them briskly, um, fairly briskly, because I don't, I don't want to, I have lots of notes. And I don't want to get bogged down <laughs> too far. I'll pr try to put a break on myself. So the first example begins, the first era begins about 1320. Um, what's happening climactically, first of all? Right. Things are, um, to use a technical phrase, going to hell uh, from the very end of the- Theological uh, phrase. Uh, theological, uh, from about the uh, the 1290s. Things are becoming much more uh, difficult. 
uh, you're getting records of um, climate-related disasters, um, uh, famine, shorter, uh, uh, shorter growing seasons. Um, but it's in the 1310s that things reach um, an uh, uh, absolute depth, particularly between about 1314 and uh, 1320. Um, that is an era when there is rain, and you think, so what? And then you realize this is absolutely torrential rain all the time through all the growing seasons, takes out all the uh, crops, uh, creates dreadful um, famines, um, makes it impossible, among other things, to um, make the salt that you need to preserve food through the winter, something we take absolutely for granted. So not only are people desperately short of food, but they're not going to have any the following uh, year. Um, we are familiar with the idea that the Black Death is later going to kill lots of people, but a vast number of people die in the 1310s. And round about the year 1320 is when the situation reaches deep crisis points. People can survive one really bad year. They've got some supplies. They've got some stores. Two years, maybe. By the time you've lived through five years, the world looks as if it is uh, uh, it, it, it is going to uh, end. And uh, what is happening is it appears to be a combination of a change in uh, solar energy, uh, driving all these um, volcanoes um, and a fundamental shift uh, in climate from the medieval warm period to the start of the uh, the Little Ice Age. So, and these volcanoes. This is the the the. the it's lovely about the nineteenth century. We can we know about Tambora and Krakatoa, and we can mm -hmm. we can date their eruptions to a day. Um, with these other volcanoes, it's quite a bit more difficult. Do we have any candidates for the sort of the killer volcano, the killer volcanoes of the 1310s? Yeah, um, we have some in the late 13th century. We do not have a killer volcano uh, in 1314. Let me rephrase it. We don't yet. Mm. Uh, the supposition is that there is likely to be one. Uh, but we we can't point to a specific uh, one uh, there. By the way, uh, once again, most of the killer volcanoes tend to be Pacific Rim and are so connected with El Nino uh, cycles. Um, but you also have some in um, uh, Iceland in the uh, 15th century that are going to be killers. But uh, a, a, a specific... Um, you know, uh, uh, Professor Mustard in the conservatory uh, with a knife. Uh, no, uh, not not, uh, not for that. So what are the, the consequences of this? Otherwise, I mean, eventually we're building up to um, not just the Black Death, but to some really dreadful zoonotic diseases. And uh, we just, uh, we've just had a, a conversation. I think listeners will have heard by this time our conversation after the Black Death. Um, mm -hmm. there are several waves of the Black Death that we forget that occur, that keep yep. on occurring into the, uh, in the short term, occur into the 1360s or 70s. And then, of course, it will yep. recur again in Europe for another 300 years. Um, but what, um, what are some of the religious consequences of all this? If you look at the years uh, 1320 in, um, around 1320 in Europe and much further afield, there, there are just so many, but if there is a uniting point, it is that of uh, paranoia, 
of uh, scapegoating, of looking for people to uh, blame. Uh, Anti-Semitism is not a new force in Europe. Obviously, it reaches new and dramatic heights around 1320 um, and then proceeds over the next um, uh, couple of uh, of decades. Sorry, Uh, we're going from a place where Jews... Actually, if I recall correctly, in the eighth century, some can are can or are owning land in southern France. Uh, they're serving mm-hmm. as doctors to Charlemagne, and then by 1090, we've got the, with the first Crusade, we've got the first great wave of pogroms, uh, in yep. which there's still uh, significant members of the church hierarchy who are opposed to that, um, who mm-hmm. are seeking to shelter Jews. But then that shifts too, um, until we're, now we're getting to what's the expulsion of Jews? 1190, thereabouts from England, uh, and there are in England. yeah by yep. Edward the first, and then the but now. By the 1250s. So 1290, 1290. Sorry, sorry, a very good good one. 1290. I'm a historian. I'm very bad at dates. Um, So by the 1320s, this is becoming a thing. It's becoming a practice. Right. Uh, Expelling Jews, but also also pogroms. Pogroms. Um, Sanctioned. uh, Also mass killings. um, And these these run through. And the historical change can be summarized, which is these run through the uh, the Black Death years. And the change is very simple. In the early 14th century, uh, Jews are very heavily concentrated in Western Europe. By the end of the 14th century, they're concentrated in Eastern Europe, Mm -hmm. where they would remain until the time of the Holocaust of the 20th century. And that is an absolutely historic, decisive shift in Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And it happens because of all these climate and plague-related disasters, which run from, uh, from 1320 onwards. There's also, if you like, a mirror image of this in the Middle East, um, where instead of Christians blaming Jews, you have Muslims blaming uh, Christians. And the key years are around 1320, 1321. Uh, you have the mass destruction of churches and monasteries. Up until 1320, Christians are still majority populations in many Middle Eastern societies. Uh, after the 1320s and 30s, they're not. <clears throat> they're um, reduced to uh, sizable but absolutely disfranchised uh, minorities. There's a large Christian population in China until the um, the 1320s and 1330s. That then disappears. Um, And where they go, uh, we we don't really know very well. I mean, maybe some survivors, like secret believers, but Christianity in non-Christian societies suffers um, appallingly. So, and by the way, uh, conspiracy and paranoia take all sorts of florid forms, uh, speculating that um, Europe is facing a plot of uh, Jews uh, allied with lepers and working for Muslims in order to overthrow uh, society. Uh, these are deeply paranoid times. And the other great consequence is um, witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Um Witchcraft as an idea has been around for a long time. Witchcraft as an organized movement, an organized cult with witches' sabbats, begins about 1320 as an idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What um, age of paranoia? What do, what's the sociological explanation for this? I mean, what's the the connection between these between disaster and paranoia? And uh, I mean, the the I think the the bog standard explanation would be that in an age of uncertainty, people look for patterns or try to impose mm-hmm. patterns on them. That seems a little bit too um, you know uh, kindergarten for me. 
I mean, there has to be some, mm -hmm. we have to have come up with a better, surely there must be a better explanation than that. Okay, well, uh, one word, it's not exactly sociological, it's more theological, mm -hmm. is uh, uh, providentialism. The idea is that things do not just happen, um, that things are uh, caused. And the great example of this is if you look at uh, plagues. Uh, the idea that plague is just something that happens um, is just not in the vocabulary of medieval or early modern thought, very, very gradually uh, in early modern uh, thought. Uh, people look to their Bibles and see that plague is sent by God to punish uh, recalcitrant or sinful um, populations, ditto for uh, famine. There are long debates, for example, uh, about whether it is legitimate to flee from plague should mm -hmm. you leave a plague-ridden city when uh, God is sending his uh, anger uh, against it? So the idea of looking for causation, um, it's, it, 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 it's, it is a kindergarten idea, but it's um, maybe in this way the human race uh, uh, lives in the kindergarten for quite long, um, yeah. uh, quite long centuries. And if you are looking to find what has made God so angry, then one explanation is uh, uh, always, we have tolerated these infidels and unbelievers doing their dreadful things in our midst. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, catastrophe leads to paranoia. And that's, of course, a good, also the, uh, a classical pagan would have said the same thing. Um, absolutely, there's a, a continuity. One of the great advantages of Christianity in that way is that they have a um, a set body of scriptures in which these ideas are set down as uh, indisputable narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, um, why was there a plague in uh, 10th century BC Israel? Uh, because David had dared take a census and God had to punish him for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, second era, beginning circa 1540. Um, what are the climactic uh, conditions sure. and what are some reasons for them? One of them is a, is a flat mystery, um, which is the year 1540 is marked by probably the worst drought of the last millennium. Um, it is a catastrophic ceasing uh, of, um, of rain. You get many uh, great rivers uh, drying up. Um, you don't have to be a great agricultural scholar to know that this is very, very bad for uh, food um, and uh, food uh, production. People become very desperate. Uh, they look for uh, culprits, of which there are many around, Catholics, brain Protestants, and uh, vice versa. Uh, by the way, very dry wooden houses tend to burn, and that means that the um, evildoers threatening our society must be arsonists. Uh, as um, as well, Jews or Catholics, whoever uh, you want. And people are prepared to take extreme um, remedies or solutions to try and uh, soothe God's evident anger. And it's exactly in 1540, for example, that the good people of Geneva invite John Calvin back as theocratic dictator uh, to see if a really extreme theocratic solution will please God. And um, indeed, uh, he is allowed to establish a regime which he never would have been done 10 years earlier. And uh, th that, that remains in place for, uh, for uh, decades. We are better 
able to account for what happens a little bit later from around 1560 the Little Ice Age enters one of its absolute iciest periods, and their volcanoes certainly uh, play their uh, play their role. Uh, and uh, th- that uh, produces a series of deep crises over the next couple of decades. And the 1560s and 1570s are not just an era of extreme climate catastrophe, but also of extremely rapid and indeed revolutionary change in religions of all kinds, especially, but not only, in Europe. So we've got the Dutch Revolt, for example. We've got we've, the, uh, the Irish Rebellions. Um, we've got, what, el- what else have we got? Council of Trent. Oh, the Council of Trent. Uh, the, the great one is the uh, the French uh, oh, religious course. wars, yes. um, which, you know, these days aren't terribly well known except by uh, European academic historians. In their time, they're the worst wars that have ever happened in Europe. Probably two million are going to die. And they're almost on the level of the Thirty Years' War. And you, you can map their high and low points fairly precisely yeah. by uh, uh, by. Uh, climate uh, change. The Dutch Revolt, by the way, uh, very clearly the lurch to violence there grows directly out of a particularly horrendous winter in the mid fifteen sixties. And then the and then the various Irish wars, um, which Irish wars, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, the great uh, Morisco uh, Muslim revolt right. in southern Spain, which comes close to returning southern Spain to Islam. Uh, uh, around about 1570, you you can't throw a stone without hitting a revolt. Yeah, with immense long-term consequences. Um, I can probably c- come up with five to ten Virginians in about 1615 who've all fought in the French religious wars, and they've all certainly fought in the Irish wars. Um, yep. and the, the settling of Ireland becomes a template for settling, you know, the Carolinas, for settling Virginia, even for settling New England. So these 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 are are. are Things that we've never heard of, except unless you're a scholar, but with immense consequences for world history. Uh, You talk about American history, um, and also you have the uh, French Protestants who would later be sent uh, Mm -hmm. overseas and exiled, and uh, they become among the prime settlers of South Africa. Mm -hmm. So it it is really a global um, uh, revolution. And by the way, some of the things in the 1560s, you get... uh, uh, French attempts even to go against the Spanish in Florida, yep. and you get these religious wars uh, spilling over. Uh, and th- that's one of the changes in my story, which is by this point, uh, wars and crises become so global and international. Now, now was this a, this was a globe by, certainly by 1560, uh, there was a global climate crisis. Is that correct? I mean, did, how did, did this affect, um, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Japanese religion. I mean, what were there? What were some other effects around the world? Yeah, um, some of the greatest changes happen within uh, w- within the uh, Ottoman Empire. You get uh, uh, dramatic changes in um, uh, in West Africa. Um, I <laughs> I would like to say more about the climate's effects on the Americas, but the problem is. Um, they, in this era, are being so wiped out by European diseases, it's hard to isolate any particular um, uh, role there. There is also an argument, by the way, which is that the mass destruction of millions of native peoples in the Americas itself 
contributes to climate change. Mm-hmm. And you think, how on earth could that be? You have these millions of people who have their fires in their villages who no longer uh, exist. That reduces uh, emissions um, and uh, uh, on a very large scale, and that in turn contributes to uh, climate change and, um, uh, uh, and cooling. And and the of course, say in the Amazon basin, the defor- dehabitation means forestation rather than deforestation. In right. uh, what we now realize are some very sophisticated civilizations in the Amazon basin, that has that has climactic consequences as well. It absolutely does, and that's by the way one of the great uh, stories in the world that uh, very few non-specialists um, appreciate. That Amazon area is coming to look like one of the most interesting areas yeah. in global history. And that's like the last in the last twenty years, and even more recently now with uh, lidar and all sorts of interesting yep. t- technical tools. And I mean, you can see this in, in North America. I think the, there's um, you have the end of the, the remnants of the Mississippian civilization. And the sort of mm-hmm. Cherokee and Nachi, Natchez and other people sort of inheriting what was left. Um, that's And as you're saying, these epidemics, European epidemics are successful in this period because of climactic changes. I mean, people are malnourished. People are vulnerable to the attacks of these admittedly alien diseases. Um, but these alien diseases do a, do a lot better uh, for themselves um, right. beca- because and, of those uh, climactic uh, changes. And there are some diseases which really are famine uh, diseases. For instance, there's uh, one disease called typhus, which is a particularly right. nasty and horrible disease. Uh, and virtually always it's a consequence of um, of famine. And the scale of the destruction of typhus is astonishing. I mean, after the First World War, for example, typhus alone probably kills a couple of million people. Yeah. In uh, Eastern Europe, it's not as famous as influenza. It's not on the same scale, but it's pretty devastating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, third era, circa 1680. Right. That is one of the uh, most uh, extreme. That's where there's a, an extremely close correlation to solar energy, uh, uh, solar power. And as you look at the uh, religious consequences uh, worldwide, um it's a, uh, where do I start? Um, there are so many revolutions and rebellions that are driven by uh, by this, which usually take religious uh, forms. Um, that results in, first of all, a great many religious refugees going uh, around the world. But the uh, rebellions also drive wars as outside powers try to take advantage of a uh, of a crisis. And I'll just mention two very big religious consequences here. It is a series of crises round about 1678-1680, which drive the great um, Turkish assault on uh, Vienna mm-hmm. in 1683, which drive that uh, war. Climate and extreme cold contributes to destroying the uh, Turkish cause. And the reason the borders between Islam and Christianity are where they are for the next 200 years is owing to that uh, crisis. It's 1683 that marks the end of the great Ottoman uh, challenge to uh, uh, Central Europe. Um Dissidents are expelled and purged in uh, European countries. Where do they go? Well, a great many of them go to the Americas, and that means Quakers most famously, but also Scottish and Irish Presbyterians, uh, French Huguenots go to different parts of the world. They go to South Africa. 
And these people don't just come along with, uh, you know, a glassy-eyed determination, but they also bring many religious practices with them. And the great example is these Scottish and Irish people who bring with them habits of field preaching. That is, you can't preach in the church, you go to these great uh, meetings in uh, fields, and if you want to see the uh, origin of the American tradition of camp meetings, uh, look for the Scotch-Irish and look for where they go in the uh, uh, in the Americas. Uh, th- those are, uh, if you like, a couple of examples, but there are just so many from this era um, around 1680. And the only thing you can say in the favor of 1680 is that the 1690s were worse. <laughs> um, various European countries in the mid-1690s have um, famines and plagues uh, that will kill a third or a quarter of their population, and that continues to drive these um, uh, uh, this kind of exodus to uh, to different countries. And then we've got following that the War of the Spanish Secession, which is, um, if not quite a world war yet, is certainly a northern. Well, it's an Atlantic war. I mean, it stretches from the from the depths of the Caribbean all the way to the plains of Central Europe. You have a series of wars around about 1700 or thereabouts, which, uh, again, not so well known except to specialist historians, uh, but enormously important. So uh, in 1709, which is this horrendously cold year, uh, the king of Sweden um, invades Russia. He loses and is uh, killed partly because he's fighting in the middle of a real ice age at the Battle of Poltava, which in some ways is the most important European battle of early modern times, except for Waterloo. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can point to any number of wars in the Baltic, in Eastern Europe, in Northern Europe, in the Americas. Um, And uh, these all have very large uh, religious consequences. What what can we say about, this was a, well, this was a, a solar, um, this is the Maunder minimum. This is a solar uh, insulation uh, uh, insulation event. Um, what can we say about its religious consequences elsewhere beyond? You, you've talked about the Ottomans. We've talked about Europe. What can we say beyond that in 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 India and yeah, um, China? Yeah, I have to say um, I was finding real problems with um, India, partly because uh, new movements and so on uh, uh, arise that it's very hard to uh, pin them to a particular uh, point. The great change uh, in China um, is in um, uh, 1644, you have the uh, collapse of the uh, uh, the old uh, dynasty uh, of, the, uh, of, uh, of the Ming. Um, but in the definition of Chinese politics, um, what causes the overthrow of these dynasties is not just, uh, if you like, secular revolutions. It is mystical religious movements, um, often uh, secret societies drawing freely on uh, Buddhist and Taoist and Christian uh, uh, teaching. And as I say, 1644 is one of those uh, turning points. So by 1680, they're kind of reconstructing after that, uh, uh, that, uh, that previous uh, crisis. Um, finally, a fourth era that you cover, uh, beginning, and we've already touched on this already with Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening, but circa 1740. And this is, uh, in many ways, bringing forward a, the movement, the Pietist movement, which we can uh, 
date back to the 1680s to the previous that's right. crisis. Uh, what yeah, causes that's right. this? 1739 uh, is uh, an odd one in terms of its uh, duration, in terms of its impact. It looks like a volcano has uh, erupted somewhere, a mega volcano like Tambora. The problem is there is no record of it. We uh, we cannot find it. It is an extremely strange thing in um, in that way. We can't give a causation. But normally when things run for about four years like that and have that kind of uh, impact, that's normally the uh, explanation. Uh, the effects in the North Atlantic world uh, and into the Americas are horrendous. Um, Ireland, for instance, is Arctic Ireland. It suffers a famine uh, that in terms of the number of people it kills is actually worse than the mm. potato famine of the 1840s. Um, and uh, it, it is a clear point where across Europe you get what these so-called subsistence crises where basically there is not enough, uh, uh, there is not enough food. Um, the religious consequences, well, I've talked about the uh, Great Awakening. One of the curiosities is why there isn't an explosion of the same kind in Catholic Europe. And I think there's an explanation there in um, in these terms that um, states have become much stronger and more intrusive. They've got much more effective police forces than they would have had a couple of hundred years earlier. Um, so they, are, they can suppress expressions of popular religious uh, zeal in a way that they would not have done uh, earlier. The other great um, religious change that focuses around 1740 uh, is the great Hasidic uh, movement. And if you look at the career of the great uh, founder of that movement, the, uh, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, again, 1740-41 is a uh, decisive turning point. Uh, people want to hear, they're open to the idea of miracle workers and uh, prophets and uh, it's the um, 1740 crisis which really lets that uh, lets that erupt. Well, let's um, move on uh, to our current crisis. Um, human history seems to me to indicate that it's awfully difficult for humans to learn from human history. Um, there are occasional guests who try to persuade me otherwise on this podcast. Um, one of them has suggested that we can learn from, we can think through scenarios of the future based on past events. And that's one way to, as it were, mine the past. Another has recently suggested that the, one of the best uses for thinking of uh, the past for the present or the future is to think uh, simply of problems uh, that people in the past have had to deal with very similar problems to the ones that we have to deal with. Um, how can thinking about the problems or examining the scenarios that, we've just, that you've just laid out, uh, at least four of them, how can that help us think about the current uh, crisis? I can't help but think of, of parallels. Um, there certainly is, um, I don't mean this in a bad way, but there's certainly a religious way of thinking for many people uh, for thinking about uh, global warming, mm -hmm. uh, uh, climate change. Uh, it reminds yep. me of the late Peter Berger, who you know recanted in the second half of his career, of his previous half, the first half of his career, and said, no, 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 secularization is not really a thing. And I remember him saying one of his last uh, little essays, I think, was um, talking about Iceland. And he says, you know, when 80% of the population believes in fairies, you can say a lot of things about them, uh, but they sure as hell aren't secular. Mm -hmm. sure. and, and, and certainly we're in a religious moment as people contemplate global warming. Mm. 
Yeah. the main point I would uh, make is that global warming will have very different impacts on uh, different parts of the world. And the places that will be most sharply affected will be the people who uh, did least to cause the problem. Mm. Um, and where numbers are very rapidly growing, so ever more people will be around to receive those particular uh, curses. Uh, above all in uh, Africa and uh, uh, Asia and Latin America. Um, And by coincidence, or in fact not by coincidence at all, those are also the areas with the most strictly and traditionally religious worldviews of anyone on the planet. And it is absolutely inevitable Mm -hmm. that those people in those communities will see these changes in not just religious terms, but apocalyptic terms, uh, exactly like the people of 1320 or 1560 or uh, uh, or 1680. Now, we can make various predictions about what uh, will happen. I mean, it is quite certain that we'll see a new age of uh, witchcraft accusations. That's That takes little imagination to foretell. Uh, we will see scapegoating and uh, possibly the purges of different kinds of minority populations. We've already seen uh, some of this in different parts of the world. Um, And we can also predict that uh, uh, disasters in those parts of the world will drive migrations, which we're already seeing uh, to some extent. This isn't prophecy. This is an extrapolation from what is happening as of uh, today. Mm -hmm. But what Nobody has really tried to model is what some of the specifically religious consequences might be in terms of imagining the religious movements or even new faiths that could grow, that could develop uh, as a direct consequence of these uh, disasters. We know that things like this have happened on each major um, uh, predecessor. Uh, they will happen again. Um, Will it, for example, just be something very predictable, like a a very kind of rigid Islamist uh, political movements like you have in West Africa? Or could you have something that is an apocalyptic movement that uh, draws on biblical or even Quranic uh, texts uh, to portray this world of rising seas and uh, drying um, arable uh, land, and that's where it is legitimate to speculate. So, as I say, there's extrapolation, which is easy, mm. but there's also speculation, which is obviously open to uh, testing and disproof. It's interesting. I mean, you mentioned that, and quite rightly, because they are the people that will have the brunt of global warming. Uh, what I am also fascinated with is the um, the not the ways in which Western Europeans and North Americans deal with global warming. I see Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. and I see a absolutely visible, uh, a person visible at numerous other religious moments. She's Joan of Arc. She's <laughs> it's the Children's Crusade. It's the uh, the out of the mouths of babes. Uh, and you know, I uh, I wouldn't be you know five or ten years would I be surprised to see a renewal of flagellant orders by people who don't consider themselves religious? I'm not sure I would be surprised. I mean, there's, because there's, there, there's a message of apocalypticism and of also of self-denial of, mm-hmm. and of also of, of, of self-examination uh, and of, 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 of self-mortification even. 
And if you uh, want to, in some societies, you could even imagine that being linked to a racial theory, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, w- which talks about the uh, the the people who uh, cause this uh, uh, situation, and uh, which uh, literally does bring in an element of um, of black and white of. Uh, uh, blame and uh, innocence. Uh, you Again, think, you that's know, a complete speculation. You might think so. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, let's talk about you as a, a writer and a historian. Uh, you are. Uh, you write a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, I once heard an author explain that, uh, uh, I don't forget who this was, that a book is a way for an author to work something out, work an idea out. Mm-hmm. And also explain sure. that this is why many academics then aren't interested in their past books because they, they, they work that idea out. Is that true for you? I mean, are you working ideas out that you just, they, 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 they're like struggling to burrow out of you. You work them out and you put it to, to one side. Yeah. I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis who uh, uh, said um, a book is writing me uh, uh, at the, the, uh, the moment or, uh, the other phrase you hear is um, um, "I am with book," as, uh, <laughs> uh, as somebody might be uh, uh, with child. Uh, yes, absolutely. And if you don't learn um, from writing a particular book about a topic, then you are you are making a mistake. If you know everything about it and uh, just set it down, then that seems to me a very sterile uh, kind of uh, kind of enterprise. Um, interestingly. Uh, Although I have written on a very large array of uh, topics, more or less every one of my books grows out of a uh, of a previous one, often mm. a line or a paragraph in a previous book, which was um, an idea which proved to be the seed of something else, uh, although the segue might not be obvious to anyone other than myself. So this is, uh, that's what I asked you before, that Jacques Ellul, the French uh, sort of late theologian, sociologist, once said to, mm. to, to a friend of his, you know, I, I'm David, I'm, I'm, I'm a fool, but uh, every one of like, he wrote so many, like 50 books, they're all chapters in one large book, which only I will read. And I, and I, I right. agree yeah. with that. So, yeah, very much. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, only I would possibly have the, uh, uh, the interest to, uh, to read. In fact, that would be an interesting project to do something like that, because you would probably see connections which would generate new books. Yeah, right. So um, yeah, I'm looking at, thanks to the, the, the magic of Zencast, I'm looking at your study um, in the background. And uh, I'm afraid um, some graduate students might be thinking that it has to have like plenty of fine old volumes, uh, leather, mm. you know, it has to be rich and mellow, or it has to be hip and with it. But you, you've got a, a perfectly blue, perfectly natural sort of blue and white second bedroom can, can you know, converted into your study. Um, so it, it's not the ambiance that's doing it. Uh, I want to make that clear. Um, it's, it's what enables you to uh, be so effective as uh, as a craftsman. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, in terms of my um, writing, um, I usually you know do not consult books or written materials as I uh, uh, as I go. I, I I sit down and write, and I can do that uh, anywhere. And in fact, you're very lucky at the moment that I'm in the second bedroom <laughs> and not in the coffee shop where I would be uh, where, where I would be normally. Um, I think the most important thing is uh, a sense of organization and a sense of um, how to 
organize the material that you know is going to be in a book, uh, how to distribute it throughout the uh, text, and a sense of what will and will not uh, be there. So, you know, the most important question for me is, um, what is this book about? This book is about 240 pages, and uh, everything flows from this. And that Mm. tells you exactly what you can afford to put in. If you have eight chapters, that's uh, 30 pages a chapter. Uh, If you are on page 62 of a chapter, you are making a terrible mistake. So I suppose it's like a sense of organization. So do you plot these things out then? I mean, are you putting these in on post-its on a whiteboard? Or do you write a sen- – I mean, P.G. Woodhouse, one of my favorite authors, but who is a meticulous craftsman, would write a 250-page scenario for what would end up being a 120-page light comedy. Um, and yeah. he was a meticulous, uh, fanatical plotter. Um, and mm-hmm. I've since discovered that many more historians than I realized have corkboards and whiteboards with that they're moving around, that they're thinking deeply about structure in ways that no one told me in graduate school. You, you obviously are thinking about structure beyond just the 30 pages per chapter, as important as that is. Sure. Uh, no, I don't use uh, corkboards. It's uh, mainly just a um, uh, a mental process. Mm. Um, but, but the point I'm making about that 30 pages per chapter is the sense of um, the limits of what can go in. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're talking about a particular topic, um, and uh, you think you know this is a very small part of one chapter uh, that either that means many things. It might be that that's the next book. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be that you are getting into it in uh, so much detail. But that question of allocation of material is uh, is central and um, uh, and planning. I mean, if I just sat down and um, and wrote, uh, th- that would be a disastrous idea uh, because it could just um, run and run. So when I deal with a graduate student, the first question I need to know about their uh, dissertations is, what is your chapter uh, structure? What mm. is your sequence of uh, uh, of thoughts? And I emphasize this idea of if you have way too much on any particular topic, you save that for your next article or your next book. So do you, you said that you, you don't consult books while you're writing? Uh... Do you have- um, I, I, I don't sort of physically, uh, you know, run over and check out page 39 um, uh, uh, of this. I try to keep the research and the writing a separate process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how do you take notes? Uh, entirely uh, online. I'm a totally um, online uh, person. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, I, I, the, the research and uh, writing, I try and kind of keep... Uh, uh, separate there. If I'm writing and I think, huh, I need to know more about this, then that's a another research uh, project. But uh, the uh, uh, the writing, I try to keep straightforward. So it, there's going to be moments in the writing where you say, I don't know enough about this. So you just oh sure, sh- you shut down the writing and spend like uh, five days um, hitting this one topic. I mean, how do you how does that work? As um, as needed, yeah. Uh, 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 as needed, not you know, I I will. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't exactly say insert facts here, uh, but but I, I I would certainly say you know I need to know about this. This is a separate thing. Yeah, I've but done that the, though. Um, I, have to, I just want to say yeah. I've put brackets in and say yeah, put more stuff in here. Yeah, so right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, again, very very technical. Yeah, very technical. Um, and and you and I, I like the you like to work in a I like to work in a coffee shop too. It's the it's the gentle hum. In fact, I have a, a a friend of mine has a white noise generator on their iPhone, mm. which is, has a coffee shop mode. 
so that she can immediately right. go to coffee shop wherever she is because it's it's right. it's for me at least it's soothing and productive and inducing productivity inducing. but the other good the other good thing about coffee shops is you will uh, chat to people and they'll say what are you writing and very often the chore of saying in 30 seconds what your book is about huh. uh is one of the most important things you can do because yeah. if you can't summarize what you're doing in about 30 seconds there is something wrong with your book <laughs> That's very nice. Um, let's. I want to finish up with a, a question um, that has played uh, bugged me for a couple of uh, podcasts that um, listeners have have by now heard or are about to hear. Uh, I talked with Mark Daly, uh, Mark Bailey, about after the Black Death. Um, it's a wonderful economic history. Gets into all sorts of details, n- very nitty gritty mm. details, including the sale of rabbits in London mm. from East Anglia. Uh, talked. Uh, to uh, about caritas about the uh the emotion of love in early modern scotland um and this mm. it turns out there's a enormous and burgeoning field of the history of emotions um oh, yeah. soon hopefully by the time uh you listeners hear this we'll talk to one of the, the some of the leaders of a new very exciting project applying big data to the english the what is wrongly, I think, called the Peasants' Rebellion of 1381. Right. They're proving that it's wrongly called because they've been able to track at least 20% of people, participants in the Rebellion of 1381 are actually men-at-arms uh, with their own coat armor. Uh, these are not hmm. simple peasants. Um, right. And I'm reading this, and I'm having flashbacks to sort of my ra- being raised as a historian by, you know, as I've said before, austere and, um, and warm and austere, but analysts um, in the Johns Hopkins History Department. And uh, you came of age a little bit earlier, um, but there are plenty of in, in the in the great age of social history. In the in the mm-hmm, sure. list was it in that dawn to be alive? And I'm wondering, looking at these projects, I'm saying, my God, they look awfully familiar. This is the stuff that we were doing back in the '70s and the '80s. Are, are, are we approaching a sort of neo-analyst moment, a neo-structuralist moment? I, I would say it um, it never went uh, never really? went away. <laughs> it's been yeah, hiding well, out. It's been effectively hiding. Yeah, yeah, uh, maybe. Um, also, I'm sort of biased because I uh, pay a real lot of attention to what's happening in British mm-hmm. uh, history, where it really did not go uh, uh, go away. Uh, you know, when I uh, uh, looked at the United States in the eighties uh, and nineties, I was really struck by what was um, what was not there. So, you know, I, I, I had people, for instance, uh, 20 years ago, talking about this sort of radical, amazing new um, idea of interpreting society by using landscape history and buildings. And I'm thinking, gee, we did that in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so there are some kind of uh, culture uh, lags. You know, um, <laughs> one little research tip I sometimes give my students uh, everyone knows Amazon.com. If you want to find out about a field, go to Amazon.co.uk and you'll find out what's in print in Britain very seriously. And you'll find on the given topic, it's totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, uh, um, so maybe it's partly the question of sort of national uh, orientation in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so. And it, it has also something to do mysterious with the way departments are funded, I suspect. Um, but, uh, that's are funded really. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that, I think so. I just had this conversation with an, uh, another, um, uh, another scholar, um, and, uh, a Russian historian and, 
I think it has something to do with uh, with, with with certain fashions and department departmental allocations. Uh, but that's uh, uh, one, one thing I want to get back to about the this the neo structuralist movement is is sort of the same objection that people had back in the '60s uh, to Brodel and sort of things. And I, I know you've thought about this because here you are talking about this deep emotional, personal uh, the idea of faith. It's so personal, it's emotional, it's it's individual, and yet you're saying it's affected by volcanoes and El Nino <laughs> and sunspots. Yeah. So, um, just a final question. Um, where does this leave human agency? Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm uh, saying repeatedly is this is not a mechanical thing. I can point to uh, disasters that uh, really don't um, ha- have any obvious uh, religious uh, uh, consequences. But I'm saying that the uh, the emotions, the attitudes can be there, but uh, society social factors, political factors, decide what the outlets are. And so, for example, I look at the uh, the years around uh, 1740, and there might be people with these very kind of uh, uh, zealous emotions and uh, feelings in France, uh, but they absolutely cannot express themselves in anything like they, uh, the way they would if they were in uh, Connecticut. Or in um, uh, in England, um, so that's not a comment about uh, the individual mother faith. It's about public expression, mm-hmm. and about public expression through um, movements. So ecclesiastical structures, laws, governance, or shape the channels through which those uh, th- those, if you like, spiritual waters can uh, can run. Will it be an uncontrolled torrent? Uh, or will it be uh, channeled into uh, into particular uh, areas? So I don't think that denies um, human agency. There's a complex dialogue between the individual and the larger society. My guest today has been Philip Jenkins, Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University and author of Climate, Catastrophe, and Faith, How Changes in Climate Drive Religious Upheaval. Philip Jenkins, thank you again so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. I want to take a moment to introduce Historically Thinking listeners to another podcast, one I've thoroughly enjoyed since it first appeared. It's The Age of Jackson, hosted by Daniel N. Galata, whom listeners will recognize from an interview I did with him earlier this spring. Each week, Daniel talks with authors of the latest books that focus on American politics, culture, religion, and just about everything else in the first 50 years of the 19th century. Lately, Daniel has featured conversations on the two Shawnee brothers who shaped American history, fear of Mormons and Jacksonian politics, and sexual tumult in 19th century America. Always engaging and interesting, The Age of Jackson is, I think, one of the best history podcasts out there. If you enjoy historically thinking, but think that sometimes I'm not doing enough podcasts on American history, particularly 19th century American history, and you know who you are, then check out The Age of Jackson, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.